0: Missionary updates. Sometimes we've been reading them on Wednesday nights. And then because I've got some churches that support me, I send them monthly updates. And what's interesting is sometimes when I see people at conferences or at different events, I'll meet people who have read my updates and I'll start telling them things going on in the church. And they'll say, Yeah, we already read about that. You sent us it in an update. And so it's interesting because sometimes I don't even know who reads some of those. Things and they'll start asking me about vacation Bible school and they'll ask me about different things that I've written about. And sometimes I think back and think, What have I said that maybe I didn't know other people knew about? And so it's interesting, even as we had Henry here last week and he was preaching to us, some of the stuff he said we already knew because we've talked about Redeemer Bible Church and different things going on with Midwest Church Extension. And what's interesting about our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. Is that Paul starts to give a um, almost like a status check? He tells the Ephesians that he's heard about them and their well doing and what they've been doing there in Ephesus. And we have to ask ourselves in these four verses, why is this text here? Why is Paul writing this to the Ephesians? And the first. 14 verses of chapter 1. It's this hymn of praise. It's this proclamation from Paul saying, we need to praise God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for his great work of salvation. And it's almost like he can't help himself. It's the first thing he wants to say when he writes to them. But then we get to verses 15 through 19. And what we often see Paul do in his letters is he says, I'm thankful for you. I've been praying for you. This is how I want to see you grow. But I think these verses are unique. Think a little bit about the background of this letter. Paul had been in Ephesus for three years. We read about that in the book of Acts. Paul had a close relationship with this church. If you read Acts 20, he meets with the Ephesian elders, and they're crying and they're upset because they know Paul's going to go to Jerusalem. And you have this moment where there's just this emotional closeness with them. There's this family-like bond. And then what happens after that is Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's in Caesarea for a couple of years. And then he goes to Rome. And somewhere in that time frame, the book of Ephesians is written. So this is probably two to five years after Paul had left them in Ephesus. And things had changed. People had changed. There were probably new Christians there. Maybe some older Christians had gone to be with the Lord. Things weren't the same as when Paul had been there for three years. Yet, as Paul writes to them, he says in verse 15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So he says, I've heard about how you're doing here Other people who have been able to visit Ephesus have told me what they've seen, and so now I'm thankful because of that. So he gets this update on how the Ephesians are doing, and that motivates Paul to pray. It motivates Paul to pray for the church in Ephesus. And there's a lot of different ways we could go with this passage. I could talk about Paul's prayer life and the prayer here. I know Keith is going to talk about prayer next week. And so I want to focus more on what are Paul's goals for the Ephesians In these five verses. What does Paul want to see as he's writing to them? And I believe he wants them to see, and he wants us to see this. It's that understanding our new identity begins with growing in our knowledge of God. We're gonna look at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and his prayer is that they would grow, he says, in wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Who's the Him? Well, it's God. Paul wants them to grow in knowing God. But it's not just so that they can have all this head knowledge. It's so that they can be changed. It's so that they can be transformed. It's so that they can have a new identity in Christ. And that's what Paul wants us to understand as well. So what we're going to talk about this morning is what it means to grow in our knowledge of God and how that affects our Christian life. We're going to start looking at that in verse 15. We're going to see that growing in our knowledge of God means walking in faith, and love. Growing in knowledge of God means walking in faith and love. And we see that in verse 15 when Paul says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. So when we see that phrase, for this reason, we have to ask ourselves, for what reason? What is Paul talking about? There's two different ideas. He could either be talking about the reason he's going to pray for them or the reason that they've been walking in faith and love, which he's going to describe, Or it could be looking backwards at verses 3 through 14, because God is the Father and he's authored salvation because Christ has died for salvation, because the Spirit guarantees our salvation. Because of that, I'm praying for you. And I want to say that I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's grammatically connected to both ideas. Paul's saying that I'm praying for you because God is the author of salvation, because we have a new identity in Christ. Because we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. He's also saying that because of what you're doing in your church, I'm motivated to pray for you. I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing. Let's look at that for just a second. Paul talks about his report that he's heard of the Ephesians' faith and love. He says, because I've heard of, first of all, your faith in the Lord Jesus. If you read Paul's letters you'll see a theme. He likes to talk about a couple key phrases, faith, hope, and love. We see that all over scripture. We see it here, faith in the Lord Jesus, love towards all the saints. What about hope? You go later on in verse 18, I believe, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So faith, hope, and love are important throughout scripture First Corinthians 13:13 13, 13 says, "So now faith, hope and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love." First Thessalonians 1, two and three, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in, in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope." 1 Thessalonians 5.8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. But only faith and love are mentioned here. We'll talk about hope later. Paul says faith and love were evident in the lives of the Ephesians. What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to have faith in God? Well, faith, as the author of Hebrews says, is the assurance of things hoped for. It's having confidence in something you can't see. We believe in a God. We can't physically see his body. We can see evidence of God all around. And so we have faith in God and his plan of salvation. This is talked about in Ephesians. But faith here isn't just the idea of believing something. It's also faithfulness. We believe in God, and because of that, we're faithful. We live faithfully to God. We're faithful in life. We're faithful to God's word. We're faithful in service and in ministry. Paul says, because I've heard of your faith vertically to God, I'm praying for you. He also says, I've heard about your love towards other people. They loved God, the Ephesians did, but the phrase towards all the saints or to all the saints show us that they loved others as well. If you remember Acts 20, if you remember Paul's dealings with the Ephesians, they were very loving people. They loved Paul and encouraged him as well. We see that love is an interesting word when it comes to the book of Ephesians. It's used several times, but it's not just talked about here. Think about the end of the Bible. Go to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. Christ writes to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them something. He says, "I'm writing to you because you've lost your first love, and so there is some kind of love, and a lot of times that's interpreted as a steadfastness or a devotion to God and an um, emotion towards His working." But the Ephesians were known for their faithful love at one time, but by the time Christ writes to them, it seems to have faded away. So what Christ knows, or what Paul says here is that it's evident when he hears about them that they're faithful to God and that they love other people as well. Think about it this way. Let's say that you were in a job and you were faithful to show up to work every day. You came to work, you punched in, you came on time, you maybe did what you were supposed to, but everybody hated you. Nobody liked to work around you. And you never had hope of getting towards a promotion. You never had hope of improving in your job. And you might say, well, that's everybody's job. Well, you have faith, but you don't have a love for what you're doing or a hope that you're going to move on. Let's say that you loved what you were doing. You loved the people that you were around and they all liked you, but you never showed up to work. And you never thought that this was a job that you were going to stay in. Well, that doesn't work either. Let's say that you never showed up to work. Nobody liked you at your job. But then you thought you were told, hey, you're going to get a promotion in a couple of years. There's going to be something better coming to you. And then you just have hope. What Paul's saying here is that you're not only faithful to God and what he's called you to do, but you love all the people around you. You love the saints. You're showing Christ-like love. And what he's going to encourage them now in the rest of these verses is in their hope, in their identity in Christ, that they have a hope that is secure. It's not just wishing for the best, but it's knowing, it's being confident about what is to come. There's been a lot of talk about Perry's funeral this last weekend. It was a wonderful celebration of life. Perry did not just wish for the best when he died. He didn't just wonder, I wonder if I'm going to be in heaven. Perry had confident, hopeful expectation that when he died, when he breathed his last breath, he would be in the presence of God. And that is the hope that Paul's talking about. That is the hope for every believer in scripture. But I want to focus on faith and love for a second and talk about how it applies to our lives. We are Christians. We go to a church, a Bible church. We all affirm belief in the gospel. I believe everyone in this room, as far as they've professed to me, is a Christian. Just because you say you believe the gospel doesn't mean that you're necessarily being faithful. Let me give you some examples. Some people say that they're faithful to the message of the gospel, and then they preach a different gospel. They embrace false teaching. They start twisting scripture. They start integrating the gospel with maybe politics or other types of things. They're not staying true to the gospel. This is not faithfulness. So faithfulness implies that you're faithful to the message of scripture, that you're doing what the Bible says that you're holding to sound doctrine. Sometimes believers can believe the gospel. They can know what the word of God says but they're not faithful to service. They don't get involved in their church. They're not faithful to pray for others. They're not faithful to commit. So they're faithful maybe in what they believe, they're not faithful in what they practice. Some believers aren't faithful to apply the gospel to their lives. Maybe they show up to church, maybe they say they believe the gospel, but their life is not being transformed. When they read verses that talk about life change and putting on this new mind and understanding, which we're going to see in the rest of Ephesians, they're not faithful to apply that to their lives and live that out. So being faithful is being faithful in all of these areas. We don't want to give ourselves a pass and just say, I say that I'm a Christian. I believe the gospel. We want to see what does faithfulness look like in our lives? We also want to love others. Love should be something that defines the body of Christ. Now, as I look at our church, we're such a warm church and we have love towards other people. But let me warn us for a second. The minute that we think that we don't need to worry about love, we don't need to grow in our love towards others, is the minute that will stop loving others. It's the moments when we think that we've got it figured out, that we don't need to grow in these areas, that will stop emphasizing them as a church? Do you look for ways to love people in our church that maybe aren't obvious? Do you find ways to encourage other people in our church that maybe other people don't think about? As we've thought about Perry and his life and his family, it's interesting to see what people do sometimes when someone passes away. And what I've noticed is that those who have experienced great loss in their life Those who have gone through maybe some of these things with other family members often are better and they know what to say to those who are grieving. They know what's going to be encouraging towards them. When my grandpa passed away, my grandma was getting used to life alone. She'd been married to my grandpa for over 50 years. They'd been living together and this was a totally new experience for her. She didn't like being alone in the house. And there's certain things that we could all say to her to try to encourage her. There's things that other people in her church would say. But there's a group of widows at the church who took my grandma in and they did a Bible study with her. And they knew how to encourage her because they'd been through that situation before. Do you find ways to love others that maybe other people don't think about, that maybe encourage the body of Christ? So we want to walk in faith and love. This is the baseline. This is how we start growing in our knowledge of God. Secondly, though, we want to pray for godly wisdom. We want to pray for godly wisdom. And this is what Paul's getting at here in these five verses. Look at verse 16 with me. So for this reason, both your salvation and then because you're walking in faith and love, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul talks about here this idea of praying without ceasing. We see it in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And what does that mean? Does that mean you're just always praying without a break? Well, no, because Paul has other things to do that maybe don't involve prayer. But it shows that prayer is a daily habit of your life. You're praying every day. You're in constant prayer to God. It's a continual action. It's not just once, but it's several times times this idea of not ceasing to pray or praying without ceasing what's described here is first of all he's giving thanks he says every time i go to the lord in prayer i'm giving thanks for you i remember you because of your salvation because you're faithful because you love others and love the lord so paul says he's giving thanks for them imagine being the apostle paul for a moment You have all these churches that you've helped plant and start around Asia Minor and Macedonia and even Jerusalem, Syria, places like that. So you have all these people that come to mind. That'd be a pretty long prayer list, right, to try to pray for all those churches. Then you've got all these people that you've been involved in with discipleship, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and then read some of the end of Paul's letters. They're filled with people that he's praying for and that he knows through ministry. Then on top of that, where is Paul writing from right now? Prison. So he's got his own stuff going on that he would like some prayer for as well. And then he's obviously praying for the Lord to come, for the future kingdom, things like that. So Paul has a long prayer list that could get overloaded with things to pray for. But he prays for the Ephesians. And he says, every time I go to prayer, I remember you and I remember your faithfulness. And I remember your love towards others. And because of that, I give thanks to God. I'm remembering you in my prayers. But we not only see him give thanks, we're going to see Paul do something else. He says, giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And now we're going to get to the actual prayer request in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory... May give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. It's interesting here that Paul starts his prayer by identifying who he's praying to. Now, none of us needed to really guess. We knew that he was praying to God, but he has a specific name for God. He says, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this connects to Ephesians. Paul's talked a lot about Jesus, He's redeemed us. He's given us an inheritance. Later on in verses 22 through 23, he's given power and authority. He reigns over the world. And what he's saying is, yes, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. But the God we pray to is the father of Jesus. He's called the father of glory. Shows us that he's our heavenly father. Yes, but he is glorious. We see the glory of God throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glories of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. God is known. He's distinct by his glory. And what we see here is Paul's recognizing who he's praying to. He recognizes who he's talking to. If you ever made the mistake, maybe you've been on the phone talking to someone and you've kind of forgotten who you're talking to. I remember... A couple years ago, I used to be in the habit with my friends of I'd say, "Okay, see you later, man, or sounds good. See you later, dude. And I was talking to a professor in college one day on the phone. And at the end of the conversation, I said, all right, see you later, dude. And I hung up and I thought that is not what I want to say to my professor, especially when I'm calling to get an extension on an assignment. Sometimes when we pray, we forget who we're praying to. We forget that God is the father of glory that he is all-powerful, and that's what we're going to see come through in these verses. Now, notice what Paul asks for. He says, I'm praying that you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, this is going to get a little bit confusing, so try to stay with me here because this is important for us to understand in our identity in Christ. He, first of all, asks for a spirit. We want to look at this. Some people think it's a human spirit, Of wisdom and understanding. Some people think it's the Holy Spirit. Now, if it's the Holy Spirit, how would they receive it again? We already have the Holy Spirit in salvation, but yet what kind of human spirit would they be talking about that we could receive? So here's what I think Paul is trying to say. What I think Paul is trying to say is that my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit would guide you in wisdom and revelation in your knowledge of God. So it's influencing your human thinking, but it's a ministry that the spirit does in your life. I don't know if that makes sense to everybody. This is a work of the Holy Spirit that he's working in you. Now we're going to talk about wisdom and revelation in a second. Let's focus on what the goal is of this. He says, this is in our knowledge of him, our knowledge of God. Paul wants them to grow in their knowledge of God. Now, as we think about that, What is growing in our knowledge of God? Well, there's theology, which is the study of God. There's a lot of things we can study in theology. There's whole books in my office that I have that are theology textbooks. And you learn about God. And you learn about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You learn about God's church, angels, all these different aspects of theology. And that's a good thing for us to study. That is good for us to know and understand who God is. But the danger of that is that we can grow in our head knowledge of God, but we've not put it into practice. And that's what you see some people do. They can tell you all of these intellectual things about God, but they don't have a personal relationship with him. In fact, some of the people who have studied the Bible maybe the most are people who aren't even Christians. Some of the books that I've read when studying for sermons, I look up a biography of the person and I say, they're not even a Christian, or if so, they're some kind of liberal theologian that just has no connection to what I believe about God. But why do they study it? Because they can study God as a theory, as an academic subject, and that's not the knowledge of God that we're talking about. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see God talk to Israel, and he'll say, you have no knowledge of of me. And Israel wants to respond back and they say, yes, we do. We read about you. We have all these rules and how we relate to you. And he says, no, you don't know me. You don't know who I am. There was one time I was at a camp and there was a speaker who pointed me out in the crowd and he said, yeah, I know you. I've seen you before. And then he says, all this stuff about me, that's not true. He thought that I was married. I was single at the time. He thought I had kids. I had no kids at the time. And I told him after the service, I said, you think that I'm someone else. You think that you know who I am. You just said a whole bunch of stuff about me that's not true, that is not accurate about my life. What does it mean to know God? It's not just an intellectual knowledge about God, but it's a personal relationship with him as well. Now, we got to be careful with this because there are some people who maybe emphasize this aspect too much. They say that knowing God isn't just an intellectual knowledge, it's a personal relationship. But they've never studied God's word. They've never looked at God's word to see what does the Bible say about God. And so this leads them into error. This leads them into going off road in their theology. So we need both. We need both an intellectual understanding of God. We need a personal relationship with God. You say, well, how do we have both? How do we do that? Well, we need wisdom and revelation from God. And that's what Paul's asking for here. He says, my prayer for you is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So let's talk about these two words. What is wisdom? Many people call it knowledge plus skill applied to life. Wisdom is a true insight of known facts. It's not just knowing facts. It's applying them to life. When we, when Alicia and I got married, we got a bunch of wedding gifts. I got a new grill that's like a charcoal grill and it has a little offset smoker. And what I found is that there's a whole world of videos and articles and even books that you can buy on smoking meat and learning all these different barbecue and grilling techniques, and you can apply them to how you cook, and you can just spend hours just enthralled in that stuff. You can spend a whole bunch of money on tools and different things to try to help you cook well, but what I learned is that I can read all these articles, I can watch all these videos. That doesn't mean I'm good at grilling. That doesn't mean I'm good at smoking meat, and in fact, I think the first time I tried to do ribs... My wife and I tasted, and they're kind of chewy, and it's like I needed to go back and maybe watch some of that again. I had the knowledge of it. I had the intellectual side of it. I didn't necessarily know how to apply it to my grill. And that was evident when I was trying to start the fire because I'd been used to a propane grill, and you just turn it on. And trying to get the charcoal to light and get hot in the grill, I learned that I needed more practical knowledge of how to use those things that I knew. Wisdom is not just intellectual, but it's putting those things into practice. The Spirit helps us do this. This is what we're trying to see. He also talks about revelation. This isn't necessarily unveiling new information, but I think Paul's talking about the illumination ministry of the Holy Spirit, helping us to understand things that we've not been able to understand before. The Holy Spirit helps us understand God's Word, this is how we know God, like I mentioned, there are unsaved people that write about the Bible. They read the Bible, they study it, but it does not mean anything to them. It does not tell them how they can have a relationship with Him, what well, does tell them, but they don't understand that. and it goes back to what Paul says in First Corinthians that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the unsaved. Revelation, the illumination ministry of the Holy Spirit. Helps us understand God's word. How many of us before we were saved read God's word? Maybe we memorized it, but we didn't say, hey, that's what it means to me. We can read about salvation. We can read that God sent his son to the world to die for our sins. But until you recognize that you are a sinner, that you need the gospel applied to you, and you confess your sins and repent and have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not getting it. And that's what Paul's trying to show us here is that the Holy Spirit helps us understand God's word and apply it to our lives. Look at verse 18. It says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Do you know that your heart had eyes? This is kind of an interesting verse. It's a little bit tricky for us to understand. But think about the words that are used here. What do the eyes do? Well, they allow us to see things. They're aware of light. Is refracted through, and we can understand things in our mind, in our brain. So it's the pathway for us to receive information. Our heart is the center of our thoughts, will, emotion. It's talked about a lot in Scripture. So this is talking about our understanding, our ability to perceive things. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, Paul talks about how before we were saved, we were blind. We were in darkness. We couldn't see anything. But we were in darkness so long that we didn't even know what light was. And we needed the Holy Spirit to illuminate us, show us the light of the gospel. So Paul says, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. What does it mean to be enlightened? To reveal something, to disclose information What Paul is saying here is not that you're going to have this happen at some point, but the tense of this phrase is in the perfect tense, which means it's happened already, and now it's having present consequences. Let me try to explain that a little bit better. At salvation, you've understood the gospel. You've been saved. The Holy Spirit has entered your life and dwelt you, as Tim talked about in Sunday school. And in that moment, you are now given the ability to understand the things of God. The Bible starts meaning something different to you. You're starting to understand what it means to know God through his word. So he's telling the Ephesians, you need to grow in your knowledge of God. I'm praying that you do that by the work of the Spirit. And by the way, when you don't think you can do that, you can have confidence because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes. This has already happened in salvation God took your dark heart and he turned on the lights. This allows you to now process the things of God. How many of you can first remember when you started driving? Maybe for some of us, that's a little bit easier. For others of us, it might be a little bit harder to remember that. I can remember when I took driver's ed and I went through all the coursework and I was there with my friends and we were learning all the textbook rules about braking and signs and accelerating and all of these things. And I had all this head knowledge, and then I put it into practice on the road. I had a driving instructor. We would go out, and this person got paid to pretty much show the students how to drive, and he probably didn't make enough because we weren't that good at driving. And then through that practice, I became more comfortable with driving. But then you go to take the test, and you're nervous about taking the test. Why? Because you don't know enough? Well, no. You know everything you need to Because you've not practiced enough, well, you do about 50 hours of practicing. So you're usually pretty well versed in driving, but you're nervous and you don't have to be. I can remember being nervous to take that test. And then I thought about it and said, I've already learned how to drive. I have the head knowledge. I have the practice. I can go in there and ace this test. Now, I had to take my driving test over again, so maybe that's not a good illustration for me because I actually failed my first test. And if you've seen my driving, you may not be surprised by that. But in general, you know what it means to drive. And this is what Paul's saying about growing in our knowledge of God. There's times in the Christian life where we grow frustrated because we say, I can't understand God's word. And I've wrestled with this verse, and I've tried to figure out what it means And I'm just stuck. What Paul's saying is, my prayer for you is that God would help you grow in wisdom and revelation and your knowledge of Him. And by the way, you can do this because at salvation, God turned the lights on. He started something in your life that helps you grow in your knowledge of God. You have the eyes of your heart enlightened. This is already true of you in Christ. Now you can grow, you can be changed, you can be transformed. And we need to apply this to our lives. For some of us, it means growing in our knowledge of God, like intellectual knowledge. Maybe we need to spend time and we need to just study God's word and spend time around it and read good resources and articles and books and maybe grow in our head knowledge of God because we're struggling in those things. But maybe for other of us, we need to grow in the actual practice of knowing God. We've read books, we've read articles, but we need to actually do those things. We need to read God's word every day. We need to be in prayer with him. We need to confess our sin to God. We need to start living changed. We need to embrace the fruit of the spirit in our lives, grow in our love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. Sometimes I think about, I I read a lot and I study a lot when it comes to theology, but do people see a change in my life? Or do people say, well, that pastor reads a lot. He knows a lot about God intellectually. He doesn't love other people like he should. He's not patient. He doesn't have any joy. There's no peace in his life. He's not confessing sin. This is why you'll see different pastors. You'll see different Christians. You look at on the outside and you say they have such a knowledge of God. They just know God's word so well. And yet they fall from ministry. They have affairs. They're caught in sin. They do just horrendous things. And why is that? They've grown in their intellectual knowledge of God. They've never put those things into practice. Maybe the things that they're saying are good. They've never internalized those things and said, I need to change. I need to grow. This is what is true of me. Now, I said at the beginning of the sermon, why is Paul saying this? We need to ask ourselves that question. Why are these verses here? And the reason why I think these verses are here is this. Ephesians is all about our identity in Christ, telling us the spiritual blessings that we have in him. We've been redeemed. We've been adopted. We've been given an inheritance. We have all these blessings in Christ. They're almost so much that we can't even begin to unwrap them and see what they mean. Paul's saying you need to understand these things. You need to apply them to your life well. And that's what chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians are about. You know these things are true about you. Now walk worthy. Now live different. Let the thief no longer steal. Father or Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husband. All those things we can do because of our identity in Christ. But it begins with growing in our knowledge of God. Knowledge of his word. Putting that into action. Then finally... When we grow in our knowledge of God, it helps us recognize our heavenly identity. We begin recognizing our heavenly identity. Let's look at verse 18, the rest of it. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you to. He's going to give us three results of this prayer. He's praying that they grow in wisdom and knowledge of God for a purpose. Not just so that they can be filled up with all this knowledge, So that it leads to change. And the first change that he wants to see is this. He says, I want you to hope and find your hope in God and what he's called you to. I talked about faith and love earlier. This is where we see hope. Through Christ, we have a new hope. It's not just a wishful thinking. It is an eternal confidence that something would happen. There are people who may know a lot about God's word but they don't have hope. And atheists may have studied the Bible to try to disprove it, but they are some of the people that you will find in the world who have no hope. And their reality is dark and it's depressing. Knowledge of God, true knowledge of God, should bring us hope. Through knowing God, we have salvation, which provides us eternal hope. Even in the gospel, we see that this hope is confirmed through the resurrection, that Christ rose from the dead. This is the hope that God has called us to. So he's saying, grow in your knowledge of God. And when you do that, you begin to have hope. When you're in your life and things feel like they're not going well and you feel stuck and you feel like you're not growing, pray, ask God to give you wisdom and revelation, grow in your knowledge of God, you'll begin to have hope. If and nothing else this, that this world is not our home and that we are going to an eternal heavenly home. And in fact, as you read the news, as you see things going on in the world, sometimes you get a little bit jealous of Perry because he's in heaven right now. He's with God and we are still here in this world. We're reminded of an eternal hope. We see a second result here in the end of verse 18. We not only know the hope that we've been called to, but also what are the riches of his glorious inheritance to all the saints. We've seen the spiritual blessings in Ephesians. About a month ago, I gave you a whole list of them that are here in Ephesians 1 through 3. Paul wants us to see that these rich blessings are ours in Christ. And we can know these spiritual blessings from God. As we grow in our knowledge of God, as we see what he's done for us in salvation, we begin recognizing all these things and realizing that we've been blessed by God. Lastly, in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Paul shows us that we have the power that comes from God. He's going to use about four or five different words for power here. We're going to try to quickly look at them. First of all, he talks about immeasurable greatness of his power. The power here is a functional strength. It means you have the capacity to do something. I had some friends in college that were power lifters. One of my friends can deadlift like 700 pounds. and He always told me, he says, you have the capacity to be strong. Now, is he saying that I'm strong? No, but he's saying, because I'm a big guy, you could be really strong if you would actually go work out at some point. You have the capacity to do something. He says, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Greatness means that you're excellent at something. You're able to do it. And immeasurable greatness means that you go off the scale. It can't even be measured by anyone. You have this much capacity to do something. And what Paul is saying is, when we know God, we study his word, when we have this relationship with him, we know that God answers prayer. We know that he has the power to work. The question stops becoming, can God really answer my prayer? Can God really do this? And it starts becoming, is this God's will? And why is that? Well, we know he has the power to do it. We know he has the capacity to. It's off the charts. You can't even measure it or fathom it. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Paul says, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. God has this power, but it's towards us. We're going to see this power on display in next week's sermon in verses 20 through 23, I believe where we see the example of God's power in the gospel and what he's done for us in Christ. He uses two final words for power at the end of verse 19, his great might. Greatness shows this physical strength or mastery. It's different than the greatness he uses earlier. And then might shows his capacity or his ability to function. Knowing God allows us to see his power on display is working in our lives, knowing that God is able to do everything. He's able to do more than we could ever ask or think. So as we know God, as we look at our identity in him, we start wanting to grow in our knowledge of him. These verses, these verses should encourage us, should exhort us to change It should show us that when we struggle with our identity in Christ, maybe you've listened to this series, maybe you've been thinking about your identity. You say, you know what? My identity's not been in Christ. It's been in something else. It's been in a personal relationship. It's been in a job. It's been in a hobby. It's not been centered on Christ where it should be. How do I change? How do I find my identity in Christ? It begins with knowing God. It begins with having a relationship with him. It begins with growing in the knowledge of his word, studying it. It begins with prayer, cultivating that personal relationship with God. So as we conclude this morning, three final questions. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Has there been a time where you truly started to know God? Where you've heard the gospel? Where you were changed? Where you were transformed? Maybe this morning you've recognized, I don't know Jesus. I don't have a relationship with him. That's where this all starts. That's where finding our identity in Christ begins, in a relationship with him. Secondly, are you walking in faith and love? This was already true of the Ephesians, that they were faithful to God, that they loved other people. And my prayer for our church is that this would be true of us as well, that if nothing else can be said of us, that we'd be known for faithfulness to God and his Word. Will we be known for our love towards other people? And then finally, are you living in your new identity? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? And is that knowledge helping you see that you have an identity in Christ? It was quite something on Friday to go to Perry's funeral. And during that funeral, we had a little testimony time for people to give testimony about Perry's life And in that moment, I just almost stepped back and I just allowed people to talk about his life and how they knew him. And it was so interesting to hear what people said. Everybody knew him in sort of a different way. You had people there who were his friends. Some knew him as a father or a stepfather. Some knew him as a church member. Some knew him as an uncle or a brother. But everyone had the same comment that he was such a wonderful man to get to know that and knowing Perry we were blessed and that we were touched by him in all these different ways but if Perry were here this morning he would tell you this that the greatest impact in his life was knowing God and that through a relationship with Jesus Christ his life began to change and it began to be transformed and it began to take his old self, which needed to be changed, which had sin, and it began transforming him into something new so that the Perry that people used to know isn't the Perry that we all knew and gave testimony of last Friday. And he would tell us that knowing God has made all the difference. And now guess what? He's in heaven. He sees God in all of his glory and all of who he truly is in a way that we can't even fathom. But while we're here on earth, we need to grow in our knowledge of God, improving and transforming our relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these verses and how they apply to our lives. We ask, Lord, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that through the gospel we would be complete, that we would be transformed, that we would be changed. We pray that you would be with us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.